Love Extra Virgin Podcast? You can support this show and help keep us ad-free through the coffee supporter feature. It's just like buying us a cup of coffee. It's totally up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the coffee link in the show description to support us now. Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hi, Sam. Hey, Natasha. Sam, here's a question for you. If you could only ever eat one cuisine again for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think I have to say Italian because I once went six months without eating pasta or pizza <laughs> and I just couldn't live my life that way. So if I, <laughs> I so I know. Sounds from, like a prison sentence. <laughs> I just gave it a shot, but I couldn't do it long term. So there you go. Italian mm. for me. Okay. Well, mine would probably be Middle Eastern, which I know is not a cuisine as it covers a lot of different countries. But I just love the flavours and the spices and the fact that so much of it is actually plant-based. Mm, yes, all those complex flavours and interesting spices. And speaking of spices, today we're talking with cookbook author Anna Satasi, who has just published a cookbook called Sumac. Yeah, Sumac is a spice blend that's kind of emblematic of Anas's country of birth, Syria. It's an absolutely gorgeous cookbook that's going to get a big workout in my kitchen. In fact, I have earmarked some recipes to cook this weekend for a dinner. Fantastic. Well, it sounds really good. And you can definitely count me in for the taste <laughs> testing. I'm always available. Yeah, as always. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and now, hello and welcome, Anasatasi. We're so happy to have you on Extra Virgin. Hey, Natasha. Hey, Sam. Thanks a lot for having me. Anas, you're not actually speaking to us from Syria today, though, are you? In fact, you've been a bit of a global nomad, I understand. So tell us where you live and how you came to be there. True. Actually, I'm currently not in Syria, that's correct. I've been living, studying and working in several countries around the Middle East and Europe. But currently, I'm living in Amsterdam. I've been living in Amsterdam for about six, seven years already. Yeah, I came in Amsterdam like by coincidence somehow. I was working in the Arabian Gulf for a, an energy company, American-Dutch company, and then I moved there for work. And I just loved it there and didn't move away. I've been uh, here for the past yeah, seven years like now and uh, I really love it. I have a place to say I'm home. Mm. Unfortunately, I hadn't had this for a while because I was, except when I was, of course, at my family's home in Saudi. But after they left and everybody is all around the world now, I think I was missing this home feeling for a while. Mm. And I wasn't deliberately looking for it, but somehow just became Amsterdam for now. Mm. You were actually <laughs> born in Syria and you, you, I know that you spent a lot of time in, in Saudi Arabia when you moved for your father's work when you were quite young, I believe. Yes, I'm really impressed by the homework you've done really on the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I am originally Syrian. I was born in Syria and I actually was exported directly to Saudi Arabia. My dad indeed was uh, working and living in Saudi with my mom. And basically, I was lucky my mom is a teacher. So she would take a three full months off of summer holiday. So we would get, go back to Syria. So we would spend nine months in Saudi, three months in a uh, summer month in Syria. 
And yeah, this is how I grew up. Nine, three, nine, three <laughs> for, the ne- for the next 18 years. <laughs> well, we won't get into all the terrible details of events that happened in Syria and, and to its people, but, but your city, Homs, where you, were, where you were born, played a very big part in the battle there, didn't it? Did, did, you, still ha- did you have family there when fighting started and what, what happened to them? Were they able to be evacuated and stay together? Indeed, uh, yes. Unfortunately, it's really hard by the uh, war in Syria. I have extended family, so my grandma, my aunties, their children, my uncles. Uh, I have a big extended family, as any big Arabian family is. So they are, most of them are still living in Syria back then. And unfortunately, many of them had to move away, find work in some other countries. But, but I do have still some family, like my grandma's mother is still living in Syria. And it is relatively better than a few years ago. And, and, it's, it's, quite, uh, and it's quite difficult to actually like, to meet again the family. But this is the reality we're living in, unfortunately, for now. And have you been back to home since the war ended? No, not really. So really the last time I've been to Syria was uh, just before the war started in uh, February 2011. And really the war started two weeks after in March. And I haven't been back since, unfortunately. Gosh. Well, of course, Anas, your memories and those you've drawn on for Sumac are from happier, freer times before the war and sharing meals with loved ones. Before we talk more about the book, can you tell us and our listeners what Sumac actually is and why it's so important in Syrian cuisine? Yes, absolutely. So Sumac is a very special to the Syrian kitchen and also to the Levant area in general. When we go back to Syria, because uh, we were living in Saudi and every summer we are in Syria, my mom would uh, insist that we bring back as many packages and jars of things as we could, stuffing them in between our clothes in our yeah. suitcase. Uh, that is what and how she would fill our pantry in our house in Saudi and uh, with authentic, basically Syrian ingredients. And one of those ingredients is indeed the uh, Syrian-made sumac. And uh, she wouldn't uh, even uh, listen to anyone or even dare to go to the Saudi supermarket to buy the sumac from there. It's always must be the Syrian sumac. And uh, w- what's so special about it, really, it is sumac can be used really everywhere. This is like a really deep red spice. Uh, and it is like the red thread that connects every dish almost it has a distinct like tangy flavor and it's so versatile that you can use in any type of dish like meat chicken soup salad and even popcorn actually like make some popcorn sprinkle some sumac on top and i guarantee you that you will not be craving caramel popcorn anymore (laughs) it's gonna be sumac popcorn i'm gonna try that yeah (laughs) Anas, I don't think I've ever tasted specifically Syrian cuisine, and it's quite possible many of our listeners haven't either. How do you describe the cuisine to someone who's new to it? Yeah, so if you look at the map, actually, like Syria is almost like in the middle of the Levant area. Like Iraq from uh, the east is very famous for their grill. Jordan from the now 
trying to find my geography. So Jordan <laughs> is in the south, it is like uh, more for pilaf. Lebanon, it's also delicious for imezas. Palestine and Israel for the dips and sweets and uh, kinafi is very famous over there. Like Turkey is also very famous for its savory uh, sweet pastries and baklava, of course. And one really good example how like Syrian cuisine is so much influenced from so many regions, but not only regions, but also through time. So like, for example, the Osman Empire, the Persians, the French, a very good example is Zatab. Zatar is a very famous uh, Palestinian Jordanian, over the, very famous in Palestine and Jordan. Like it's very green over there and fresh. But for example, in Syria, there's a twist to it. It is very nutty flavor with, of course, sumac in it. And I think uh, like the Syrian, and also what I find it very special for with the Syrian cuisine, it's also very regional. So within certain regions in Syria, there's actually some kind of specialty and style to the food. And for example, in Aleppo, like they, in Aleppo, they borrowed quite a lot from the Turkish and Armenian. In Tartus, on the coast, a lot of like Mediterranean type of dishes. And in Damascus, and it's, it's more like a style of uh, where they keep it simple and subtle. So that's what I find it also very intriguing and amazing about stealing cuisine. I did not know that about no, Zatar, that it also came in a green version. Yeah, and I think from an Australian perspective, we do tend to look out and think, oh, well, Syrian food, it'll be kind of all Syrian food. It'll be, of course, forgetting that countries have their regional differences of their own. Mm. That's, that is intriguing. And as in your book, you mentioned the concept of nafas. Can you tell us what it means and also how it applied to your family meals when you were growing up in Syria? Yeah, I mentioned in the book, like there are two indispensable ingredients for Syrian cooking. And the, the first is nafas. Uh, nafas, you cannot see it or touch it. You, you can also certainly not taste it. And uh, it literally means breath. But in the context of cooking, it means uh, the art of cooking where ingredients combine in harmony. To give you an example, kaag. Kaak is a very simple Syrian cookie. There's not a lot to it. It's like flour, sugar, oil, water, maybe some sesame seeds. But nafas makes it uh, taste special. Nafas is really knowing how to get the best of the season's harvest and uh, how to perfectly use a perfectly ripe tomato in your cooking. And just to uh, nafas, it's the highest really compliment that you can give to any Syrian cook. For me, like as I say, nafas is found in the heart of a person at the stove and is the essence of a really well-prepared dish. And can you tell us a little bit about your family meals growing up as a child? I, I suspect they had lots of nafas involved. Yes, indeed. So like as, to give you an example, my, my mom is the best person who can do a simple tomato sauce. If you give her and another person the same tomatoes with her nafas, with her art of really using this tomato, she can give and make the best tomato sauce ever. Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> so I believe that generally in Syria, the women are the main cooks in the home, but I'm intrigued that the preparation of hummus and bean dishes is a man's task. 
Why is that? And why those particular dishes? Yeah, I find it also really weird in that those two <laughs> specific type of dishes are really for a man. Like, I wish I have a scientific reason behind <laughs> this phenomena, but my hypothesis is that uh, those dishes are particular to a weekend breakfast. And this is the time when my dad, for example, would pamper my mom for the weekend and cook those dishes for her and for us. But it is not only in uh, our house, it's very common among uh, Syrian that men are the ones who actually prepare those dishes. That's so interesting. Mm. Speaking of hummus, we've been on a bit of a mission to find out where it actually originates from. We had a fantastic Palestinian chef, Fadi Katan, on the podcast who claimed it for Palestine. But what's your opinion? Do Syrians claim hummus as their own? I just love this passion of Middle Eastern towards hummus. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and how beautiful would this word be if we only argue and fight around hummus. But, <laughs> but indeed, many countries are convinced that they are the inventors of this amazing dip. But just so we check the facts, okay, that I am from a city called Homs. And coincidentally, hummus is also written the same way you write homes in Arabic. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to claim it. But <laughs> what I want to say is that uh, let's call it, it's an international food. And I'm happy to call it this way as long as everyone is enjoying it. <laughs> and do you do it differently in Syria or is it, it the same? Well, in Syria, we have actually two types of hummus. We have it uh, hummus we call it with tahini and hummus with oil. So it's very common whenever you go to a hummus place and we have those like a specialty hummus place in Syria and you would ask them, I want hummus. They would tell you, okay, which one? You want the one with the olive oil or with uh, the tahini? And by the way, both of them had olive oil. <laughs> mm. In Australia and, and perhaps in other countries, we tend to eat hummus pretty much solely as a dip. But in Syria, it's often served with toppings. What are some of those? And also, can you give us any of your tips for making really good hummus? In Syria too, we even, we do eat it as a dip or a mezza, but sometimes we also eat it as a main and the only course of the evening or for lunch. And my favorite toppings are the cubes of lamb fried in olive oil, and also, I really love the ones to uh, topped with uh, pine nuts. And one of my favorite is the spicy Malgay sausage. This is uh, really good with topping hummus with, with crumbles of fried spicy sausage. I don't know how Sam and I manage this, but we always seem to record before either of us have eaten anything. And then we sit and listen to our guests talking about this beautiful food, just mm. stomachs rumbling. Yes. <laughs> and I presume that... The hummus is handmade. Correct. Can you talk us through the preparation of hummus? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to do the best hummus, you need to bring chickpeas that are dried and uh, you need to dry uh, to, to soak them in water for uh, overnight at least. And then they double in size. And then you would use those chickpeas and uh, boil them in, uh, in water for at least three hours. The uh, chickpeas should be so soft that it would really fall apart once you touch it. And if you want to know the secret of hummus, it is this. 
like the chickpea needs to be so soft that it falls apart and that makes the best hummus. And basically once it becomes this stage, you need to cool it a little bit, but then afterwards you would uh, add the, the tahini, the olive oil, the salt, a bit of lemon, if you would like some garlic, and then mix it all together, then you get uh, the best hummus. <laughs> yeah, I can guarantee that I have not no. made them soft enough no. in the past. I, just as you're talking, I was, <laughs> I was thinking to myself, okay, no, I definitely mm. haven't made them soft enough. And you put in, did you say that you put in a bit of bicarb of soda? Yeah, that would actually make make them soft. So And to make it even, uh, so they become soft faster. So you don't need to boil them for so long. Right. That's where I've been going wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and as I loved the street food section of your book so much, along with that story about you and, and your little friends setting up your own shop as kids, what are some of the most common street foods? I have to agree with you on this. Like, I also love street food, especially really love Syrian street food. It's so good. And to be honest, shawarma. Syria is like uh, the master of shawarma, and it's a very common uh, street food. In Syria, shawarma is sold like in small kiosks, uh, not uh, any larger, like the cooking area itself. And the kiosks only open in the evening, and they usually also sell only shawarma. It's like the only thing on the menu. And they're very passionate also about uh, the shawarma. You can wait for 45 minutes in a queue for a good shawarma and I speak from experience by the way (laughs) and I did it but it's worth it. (laughs) Could you just explain maybe to some of our listeners perhaps in other countries who don't know what shawarma is? Yeah so shawarma is uh, basically a it's either could be beef or lamb and it's basically done in a big skewer but it is layered with some fat where the fat cooks the meat while it's on the on the fire. So you can just imagine how juicy the meat would be in a flatbread with tahini sauce, with some onions and parsley, and that's it. Oh, God, Sam, we'll have to go out for lunch after this. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Very hungry now. Mm. Anas, you write that many of your recipes have come from your family. How did you set about gathering them and and, uh, putting them together? Yeah, so I honestly, like, started when I left my home, uh, my family home, I really missed my mom cooking. And especially when I moved to Europe where I was missing really good, for example, shawarma or hummus. I was like, mom, I need those recipes. So I just started Skyping with her, talking to her on the phone every, almost every evening, like to cook something from her repertoire. And basically that's how I started like collecting recipes and being inspired by her cooking. But also from my auntie, from my grandma, I would call them and get uh, their recipe. And that's really how I managed to collect uh, so many recipes from, from my family. And your very lucky friends get to take advantage of your cooking skills because you, you cook a lot for them, right? True. Yes, yes. I, uh, you need to tell them this, that they are... <laughs> yes, I think they are spoiled. Uh, <laughs> so I, I love cooking. And I honestly like cooking for people. I don't like cooking for myself only. So... I always enjoy cooking for people. Yes, I think. Do you have a favorite? Yes, indeed. 
I love Mujaddara. We were just speaking about it a few minutes ago earlier before the show. And for me, Mujaddara is so simple. It is like three main ingredients, rice, lentil, and caramelized onion. Somehow the combination of those three together is just phenomenal. Mm, sounds so good. <laughs> it does. Now, in your book, in Sumac, you write about Akabani tablecloths and your own collection. Tell us about them and what makes them so special. Really, Akabani are very typical Syrian uh, tablecloths. They are very colourful usually, and uh, also they are hand-embroidered uh, tablecloths. And they are so beautiful and quite original. And they could be seen as old-fashioned. Well, they are 150 years old. They have been doing this practice, this art, 150 uh, years ago. And uh, traditionally, they are made from white or even sometimes a saffron-coloured silk and uh, embroidered with uh, gold or silver motifs of usually flowers, leaves, or trees. And the patterns are usually also inspired by the flora in the area where they are made. And uh, usually even those uh, beautiful motifs have exotic names to it, which also gives a name for the tablecloth itself. And usually no name is the same as the other, or no tablecloth is the same as the other. So you have names like the uh, pergola edge, the lily vine, the thin alamond. So it's quite funny, those names. And uh, I remember you, my mom used to, to say to me, like to help her, for example, and ask, could you please get me the thin alamond tablecloth from the cabinet? I was like, okay, like this is the thin alamond. <laughs> it's quite special that how how funny also those uh, names for those tablecloths but those names basically come from the embroidery that is on the uh, on the tablecloth well, that's beautiful it's lovely we'll have to include some photographs on mm. our website we'll, yeah, we'll find some that'll be beautiful when you talk about going back to syria for your summer holidays can you give us a description of what a typical extended family meal is like yes absolutely if you ask any Syrian, what do you do on Friday morning? Everyone would say Friday morning for breakfast, we go to grandma. So it is like a religious activity that what we do Friday morning, we go to our grandma, me, my family, my extended family, including my cousins, my aunties and uncles. We would go there to her place. We'd have all the usual small dips for breakfast, like uh, za'atar, cheese, labne, but also makes it even more special is the hummus and the beans dish, which are done, as mentioned, by my dad or by the male, somebody who is the man in the, in the family. And uh, those are the, really the times where we would relax after like a long week of some activities, family members doing uh, individually and like this is the place where we all would come back all together for this breakfast and really stuff our tummies until it is uh, we're full and then all what we talk about is where are we going next for lunch so those <laughs> are the days where i really would love to have to for them to come back home. so that's uh, the usual how many people would normally be at these family gatherings on fridays Wow, yeah, we would be around like 20, 30 family members 
who would uh, gather at uh, the backyard garden at my grandmother and like sits on uh, chairs, stools, on a swing even, just to make ourselves cozy and fit uh, her table. We're a big family. (laughs) It must have been wonderful going back to Syria as a child and, and meeting with your cousins and your extended family. What kind of things did you do there during the summer, apart from eating a lot? Yes, absolutely. Really, for us, going back to Syria is like a celebration. And uh, what that means, like, uh, we would always go to weddings, to graduations, to uh, anniversaries. And that's, like, really the continuous uh, rhythm of our summer for three months in Syria. Sounds wonderful. So, so many nice memories for you there. Well, Anas, you have definitely left us both very hungry and inspired to try some Syrian dishes. And I know Natasha's got a feast planned so um, yeah (laughs) it's very exciting so sumac is truly a beautiful cookbook so congratulations Uh, you left me hungry too really speaking uh, (laughs) with the food uh, with you too but and it's like almost 12 a.m amsterdam time so i'm not sure why i'm hungry i'm sure you can have a snack uh, (laughs) (laughs) exactly but really sam natasha thanks a lot for having me truly flattered uh, with your kind words and i really enjoyed speaking with you thank you so much it was lovely to have you and listeners will put a link to where you can buy sumac on our extra virgin webpage and and us should you ever come to australia sam and i will have practiced our hummus diligently and we'll be interested to hear what you think <laughs> well when you say hummus and visit australia in one sentence uh, for me that sounds very appealing i'm sold sign in <laughs> you're always welcome thank you again Anas, and thank you to our listeners that's it for this episode of extra virgin until next time bon voyage and bon appetit you've been listening to extra virgin a podcast for the epicurious You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more at our website, extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. And if you like what we do, you can support us by buying us a virtual coffee at our website. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please give us a like.